Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go, you go, and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Our Father, thank you for sending us your dearly loved Son, Jesus. You sent him so that we can have eternal life. Help us to listen to him now, to trust him, to follow him. Soften our hearts, Lord. Make us humble, willing to learn from Jesus, our teacher. We pray these things so that we might have life in his name. And amen. You can know the name of something, but not know the meaning of that name. You can know the name, be familiar with it, but actually not know the meaning of it. The parable that Luke records here in chapter 10 of his gospel has perhaps one of the most recognizable names in all of scripture. Whether you come from a Christian background or you don't, you might know this parable of the Good Samaritan. You know that name. The name is well known, but the meaning of that name is not as well known. Maybe when I say the name, the title, Good Samaritan, you have an idea that immediately pops into your mind that's been embedded into your mind from you don't know when. Uh, just this week, I heard the expression Good Samaritan several times. Uh, I was at the gym. Someone mentioned a neighbor who, who this week, we all need a neighbor like this, who graciously snowblowed their driveway, and he was called a Good Samaritan. I read a news story about somebody in the States who heroically wrestled down a shooter who saved many lives potentially, and the news station called him a Good Samaritan. Uh, really, you can just you know, Google this, and you will instantly find dozens of instances where a person or a group of people are described this way. They're described as Good Samaritans. You know the name, 
but you might not know the meaning of the name. According to most people, in in the popular conception of things, a good Samaritan is someone who's generous, somebody who's charitable, especially if they show charity to people who are in a particular need. And so when you hear this story, when you hear this name, you might immediately think, oh, this is the story where Jesus encourages his, his followers to be kind to their neighbors, to perhaps volunteer at a soup kitchen, or maybe to start snowblowing their neighbor's driveway. Therefore, this text, because it is so lightly and so commonly understood, it's actually a pretty challenging text to preach through. I found it very difficult to to figure out how I wanted to uh, explain what's going on here in this text. Because while nearly everybody knows the name Good Samaritan, few people know the meaning of this parable. They haven't looked at it very closely. Most of us are bringing particular kind of baggage to this kind of text more than we do to other texts. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do kind of an upside-down sermon. I'm going to give you the, the kind of a weird structure to this. What I'm going to be doing is I'm just going to be explaining the text kind of top to bottom. I'll be a tour guide to you, and I'll point out different features of the text. Going down towards the end, I will give you two main points taken from this text. And, and last of all... I'll give you what I think is the main idea of this entire text. Normally, we do things the opposite. I give you the main idea, I give you a couple of texts, uh, a couple, couple main points, and then I explain the text to you. But we're going to do it upside down this way, because I think this might be actually helpful to clarify when I get to what is actually the big idea that Jesus is getting after with this text. So again, I'm going to walk through the text line by line, keep the text in front of you. I'll be your tour guide. I'm going to point out features that I think are very important to understand the meaning of this parable as a whole. And after that, I'm going to set before you two uh, different angles to understand this story. And finally, we'll settle on the big idea of the entire parable. So starting with verse 25, starting at the top, I want you to notice that this parable is set up when a lawyer poses a particular question to Jesus. Some translations have that, uh, have lawyer, they translate it as legal scholar or expert in the Mosaic law. So this is an expert in the Old Testament scripture. So he's something more like a professor of theology than uh, somebody that you'd find in a courtroom today. The text says that he asks this theological question, this question about God and the nature of reality to Jesus, not out of genuine curiosity. He's not trying to get information. Rather, he's trying to probe Jesus for weaknesses. He asks this question Because he's trying to trap Jesus. The text says it. Look at it. He says, he stood up to put Jesus to the test. And that word test, uh, it can also be translated as to tempt him or to incriminate him. See, at this point in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has lots of people following him. He has lots of followers. They're listening to his teachings. They're admiring his way of life. They're amazed by his miracles and his authority, and they follow him wherever he goes. And what we also learn through Luke's gospel is that the established religious leaders in Israel, people and groups like the Pharisees or the scribes or the lawyers, like this man is a part of them, they are incredibly jealous of Jesus. They're envious of him. They're suspicious of him. They're angry at his popularity because they're supposed to be the teachers in Israel. They should be the one that people are listening to. They've got the credentials. And so together throughout Luke, we find them trying to expose Jesus for the fraud that they think he is. And so it is in this spirit that the lawyer asks this question. This is the question. Look at verse 25. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, this is the question. 
This is the big one. In Jewish thought, this would be the same thing, be, uh, synonymous with asking, uh, what, how do I enter into the kingdom of God? Or what must I do to be saved? How can I be made whole? How can I be in a right relationship with God Almighty? And listen, I hope you have asked this question too. Again, this is the question, the big one. It's probably the most important question of your life to ask this question. I want you to notice what Jesus does. He turns the tables immediately. He knows this is a trap, and he pulls uh, a, a classic rabbi move. He answers the question by asking a question, right? He does this a couple times in this text, and it's, it's marvelous to see. He asks the lawyer, what is written in the law? Verse 26, how do you read it? The lawyer, who's probably, you know, filled with like a know-it-all confidence. Uh, he's the only credentialed religious leader in the room, and everyone's looking at him, and this is probably what he wanted from the beginning, and he gives just the perfect answer. He gives, a, he gives a perfect answer. He cites two verses from the Bible. One is from the book of Deuteronomy. One is from the book of Leviticus. And, and these two verses taken together, Jesus would agree with him in other parts of, of, of the New Testament, taken together, they summarize all of the Old Testament, all of the law and the prophets. What do the scriptures tell us is the way to enter into eternal life? Look at verse 27. He responds, you shall love the Lord your God. The God who rescued his people from Egypt. The God who will soon raise Jesus from the dead. You shall love that God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is life. Loving God with all of your passion, all of your muscle, all of your intelligence. Loving your neighbors as well as you love yourself. That's life. And Jesus responds, verse 28, he says, perfect. That's the correct answer. Do that, and you'll live. And the lawyer who was standing there, probably thinking he was going to trap Jesus, stands there in a trap himself. He's trapped because, like all of us, we can know what we should do, and yet we don't do it. This is common to us all. It's common for him. It's common for us. We can have the right answer. We can know exactly what to do. But then when we look in our hearts, we find that we are not doing it. If you've been in the church long enough, you know that loving God and doing what he commands is what we're called to do. Another way of saying this is that God's will is the way of life. But the lawyer, like many people, probably like you, just knowing what you should do isn't enough. That is not sufficient. And so in verse 29, Luke, the author, writes that the lawyer quickly attempts to look at it, quickly attempts to justify himself. Uh, the message paraphrase of this puts it, he is looking for a loophole. He, he, he asks, uh, and just who is my neighbor? Maybe this is the way out. Now, he could have asked Jesus a couple of really good questions here, in my mind. The questions that he actually most needed to ask. Questions like, Jesus, how do I love my neighbor? Or Jesus, I, I've actually failed to love you and to love my neighbors as I ought to. Please forgive me. To my shame, I find that I love myself, I love my reputation, I love my comfort and my pleasure far more than I love God and my neighbors. Jesus, will you please teach me how I can walk in love and so walk in life? Those would have been really good questions to ask, but no, he doesn't do that. Instead, he does probably what you and I would do in that situation. 
We try to justify ourselves, try to find a way out. And so we might ask a question similar to what he asks, to, to find our way out of this, uh, this puzzle, this trap. Who is my neighbor? This parable, I want you to know, is so much more than about doing nice things for people, even very needy people, as important as that is, because this parable, you have to understand the context that it's given in. It is an answer that is given to a person who's desperately trying to justify themselves. That's where this parable comes in. It is given to a person desperate to justify themselves before God. A person who might know the thing they should do, but find in themselves that that they don't have the power to do it. So Jesus answers the question this way. He gives this parable. Starting in verse 30, he tells a story about a Jewish traveler going from the city of Jerusalem down to the city of Jericho. Now, this is, this is a descent. Uh, Jerusalem was a city on a hill, and so you'd have to go downhill about 3,500 feet and 27 kilometers away to arrive in Jericho. And that journey was notorious for being dangerous. It was a wilderness, it was a desert, and it was filled with danger. There was caves that thieves were known to hide in until travelers would pass by and then they would mug them in this barren place and that's exactly what happens in this story robbers fall on this traveler and he's stripped he's beaten and he's left half dead but in verse 31 there's a moment of hope it's this half dead traveler's lucky day because a priest is coming a priest this is someone who serves in God's very own presence in the temple, who who from childhood has been acquainted with the law of God, whose job it is to intercede before God for the needs of his people. And by chance, he happens to be coming this way. And the traveler might be saying, if he's conscious, thank God, I'm saved. But what does the priest do? What is this man of God who knows exactly what the scriptures say to do in this exact situation he sees the beaten man and he passes right by him being careful not to come too close now now notice the text does not say why he didn't stop Uh, maybe he was on his way to worship and he didn't want to get unclean for the service Uh, maybe he was worried about getting robbed himself we don't know and it actually does not matter we just know that he knew what was required of him by the law He knew the law. He knew those same verses from Deuteronomy and Leviticus about loving God and loving your neighbors, but he didn't. Or maybe he found within himself that he couldn't. That's not the end of the story. This dying man is twice lucky. Another person is coming. Not just anyone, but another man of God is coming. It's a Levite. A Levite was a temple assistant. This is someone who also knows the scriptures, someone whose very job it is, you might say, is to love God and to love their neighbors. That's what he does. But what happens? It's the same story. He passes by too. In the same way, Jesus doesn't comment on the Levite's interior dialogue or the justifications that he might give to himself for not caring for his neighbor, only that he didn't. And now comes a moment in the story that no one would see coming. Who comes down the road next but a Samaritan? Now, you might hear that name, but you may not know its meaning. It's important to know who the Samaritans were and how this story might have been first heard. The Samaritans were a people group living in Israel that had a racially mixed background. 
They had both Jewish and Gentile ancestry. They were literal neighbors to the Jewish people. They lived in the province of Samaria, which was smack dab in the middle of the northern province of Galilee and the southern province of Judea. And for hundreds of years, these neighbors, the Jews and the Samaritans, hated each other. They hated each other. In fact, when the religious leaders wanted to insult Jesus, when they really wanted to give it to him, they said, Jesus, you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. Like two of the biggest disses that you could possibly give. Just the name Samaritan was like a, a, a filthy curse word in the mouth of a pious Jew. And so here comes a Samaritan, someone whose religious knowledge is actually all wrong. They, they had a different book of Moses. They had a different temple that they worshipped up. Things were messy in Samaria. But note, he does exactly the right thing here. For all of his lack of religious knowledge, he does the thing that the scriptures call him to. He is moved by compassion, verse 33 says. He extends, verse 34, incredible kindness to this neighbor who he owes nothing to. He goes to the injured man, binds up his wounds, he medicates him, sets him on his own animal, brings him to an inn. He provides further care for him once there. Verse 35, he doesn't stop with that. The next day he gives a substantial amount of money to the innkeeper and charges him to continue to nurse this man back to health and, and says that if there are any other costs, add it to my bill and I'll repay it when I come back. And then we get to verse 36. We get back once the parable's done and the rabbi Jesus, the teacher, he asks another question to this lawyer. Look at it, verse 36. Which of these three do you think, religious expert, proved to be, or you could say, became a neighbor that day? And again, the lawyer answers perfectly. The one who showed mercy. That was the neighbor. And Jesus responds in almost the same way. Exactly. Perfect. You go and do likewise. So that's a run-through of the text from top to bottom. What does it mean? <laughs> What's going on here? I'm going I'm to give you two angles to understand this text before we, we, we settle on the main, the big idea of the whole text, okay? Two angles that I think should clarify this parable a little bit more. This is angle number one, okay? Jesus wants his disciples to not only have true belief, but also true behavior, Disciples of Jesus Christ are called to not only have the right beliefs, but the right actions. Many disciples of Jesus today in the church do not have a knowledge gap. They have an obedience gap. The lawyer didn't lack orthodoxy, which means right belief. He lacked orthopraxy, which means right action. Both are important, and both are essential in the lives of Christians. Again, the lawyers... Uh, the lawyer might have been very proud that he had truer belief than the Samaritan in that story. And that was actually true. And yet, the great shame of, of the priest and the Levite in that story wasn't their lack of knowledge. It wasn't their lack of understanding. It was their lack of love, their lack of mercy to their neighbor. And so the question that Jesus is bringing out in this parable is, do you know but not obey? Are you like the lawyer? Are you like the priest? Are you like the Levite? Proud that you might know the scriptures better than the people around you, better than your neighbors. Are you proud of your beliefs? And yet you're unwilling to do what they say. You have the scriptures. 
but you do not do what they say. Jesus has something very simple to say to Christians, to religious people who have the right beliefs. He says, go and do what you already know. Go and do it. You don't need more information. You know what to do. It's clear, so go do it. And so let me just ask you, is there something that you know that God has called you to, something that you know is right, but you're not doing it? Friend, go. Don't delay. Do it now. Your problem is not an information gap. It's an obedience gap. And so go and do the work of mercy, the act of love to your neighbor that you are being called to do now. Here's the second angle of this parable. Disciples of Jesus are called to be gospel runners who are also gospel neighbors. Jesus' disciples are to be gospel runners who are also gospel neighbors. Uh, In the last couple of weeks, just above this text, if you have a Bible, you can see at the top of chapter 10, um, there has uh, been a couple of weeks where we've been looking at the mission of the 72 disciples. These are 72 disciples that Jesus has sent out ahead of him to preach the good news of the kingdom. Uh, And what I called them in previous sermons is they are gospel runners. They go before Jesus to share the good news with everyone, to share the, the gospel that in Jesus rescue from sin and death is found. It is in him, in his person, in his work. Disciples of Jesus then and now are to be people who speak the words of the gospel to everyone everywhere. This is our calling as a church, as individuals, to speak words. In Jesus, God has entered into this world to repair the damage that sin has done, and that is good news that must be spoken. It must be told using words. Now, some people in the church, they love this. They are are passionate about it. They want the church to be filled more and more with gospel runners, people who are bold and glad to speak these words to everyone around them. This to them is the heart of Christianity, but others in the church get nervous about this. In fact, when they finally get to parables like this one, the Good Samaritan, they're like, ah, finally, this is actually the heart of the Christian faith, one that focuses on love for our neighbors and care for the needy, and they are all about that. They want the church to be filled with gospel neighbors, They see that as the heart of Christianity, but as history is observed, Christianity, when it has been at its very best, when it's had the strongest witness in the world, when it's been the most attractive or the most compelling in an undeniable way to people who were once completely opposed to it, it's been when the church excelled in loving others in both word and in deed. When the church was filled with gospel runners who were also gospel neighbors. Christ Church, how are we doing with this? Are you loving your neighbors with your words? By speaking the very words of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Listen, this is desperately needed. We've talked about this the last few weeks. We need gospel runners. These are the kinds of disciples that Jesus is calling. But listen to this parable. The world is desperate for gospel neighbors. Are you loving and serving your neighbors in their desperate need with your deeds, with your actions, with your time, with your mercy? Do you know them enough to even know what they need? For this church to be faithful in Halifax, for any disciple of Jesus to be faithful to his call, we must be both, both both gospel runners and gospel neighbors. We've worked our way 
kind of through the text to two points. Now I want to get to what I think is, is the main idea of this entire text, uh, considering the context uh, and everything that's come before it. When I looked at this parable this week, I, I, I took the main point of this whole parable to be this. It's very simple. Maybe it's not simple. Love your neighbor, even your enemies, because God loved his neighbors, even his enemies, by sending them Jesus Christ. Friends, love your neighbors, even your enemies. Why? Because God loved his neighbors, even his enemies, by sending them Jesus Christ. Throughout much of church history, this parable of the Good Samaritan was read as an allegory. It wasn't really about loving our neighbors or showing mercy to those who were desperate for it, even if they were your enemies. It wasn't about the church ensuring their faithfulness to loving others with both words and deeds or, or um, our, our own hearts having both right belief and right behavior. The parable of the Good Samaritan was read near universally in the ancient church as an allegory that it pointed to something else entirely. So if you read early church writers on this text, Irenaeus, Clement, Origen, Augustine, they read the story, I'll give you the outline, like this. Sinful humans like you and I are the robbed and beaten man. We're dead in our sins and transgressions. And we are not helped by the law or by good works, as represented by the priest and the Levite. And so we need Jesus Christ, who is the good and true Samaritan. We need the church, which is represented by the inn, uh, we look forward to Christ's return, which is represented by the return of the Samaritan to settle all accounts. Now, I think taking this as a straight allegory is a bit too much. I think it's clear that in the first place, this parable is Jesus responding to a question asked by someone who is desperately trying to justify themselves, just like you and I are. And so the person that you and I, if we were to have any kind of allegorical or metaphorical look at this uh, passage, the person that we should see ourselves most in is in the lawyer. Because like him, if we're honest, we're uncomfortable standing before Jesus and having our lives exposed. We know the good that we should be doing, and instead of repenting and asking for his help, we often try to make excuses. We try to find the loophole, a way to justify ourselves and our lack of love for God and neighbor. But this is what I think these ancient interpreters got exactly right. Yes, the scriptures are clear. We're love our neighbors, even our enemies. But this is what they saw clearly in all of the scriptures and in the ministry of Jesus, that we do so only because God first loved us. We can love our neighbors, even our enemies, because the God of the Bible is the God who loves his neighbors, even his enemies. And that's us. Jesus came to earth not to condemn this poor, excuse-making lawyer, but to save him. And he comes for you too in all of your excuses, in all of your ignoring your neighbor. He comes to you not to condemn, but to offer eternal life to you in his name. This is the love of a God who loves his neighbors, even his enemies. And so he comes to you now. What excuses are you making right now to not repent of your sin and trust in Christ and to live in the love of God and neighbor? What reasons are you making? What intellectual explanations, what practical reasons do you have? We're called in this moment to reflect on Jesus Christ, to reflect on our lack of love and to come to him and ask the questions maybe this lawyer should have been asking. 
Jesus, will you heal me? Jesus, will you help me? Jesus, will you repair this broken heart of mine? And when we who are broken and half dead in our sins, we have this hope that Jesus, when he hears these words, will not pass by on the other side of the road and ignore us. No, he'll come to us and he will care for us. Friends, you can love your neighbors, even your most hated enemies, the person that you cannot imagine you could possibly show care for, not because you're a great person, you're not, but because we serve a God who loves his neighbors, even his enemies. And we can know that by seeing that Jesus Christ was sent for them. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus clearly now, to see his mercy and his love for us, even we who have shown ourselves to be his enemy. Father, we confess our sins. We want to confess them more and more fully. And so we ask for your spirit to be sent to us now to open our eyes, to give us the faith that we need so that we can walk in love for you and neighbors because you first loved us. We invite you to turn to the Lord's prayer, which is written in our worship guide as we finish our time by offering this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.